house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that knows exactly why Salma Hayek hates the Canadian movie Water. I am your host, Joe Reed. I'm here with my co-host, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited to get this started off. I feel like we're starting off on the exact right note, which is actresses and I don't want to say abject failure, but like this was a swing and a miss of a movie we're talking about today. Failure, but a modest, inoffensive failure a little bit like nobody's nobody's being held to the grindstone over this being a failed Oscar film. We we being uh, people who love movies, who love actresses, we don't want to like dunk on it too much, but like we can celebrate in the foibles of our favorite women, right? We can do that. Yes, absolutely. I feel like that's sort of what we do mostly. <laughs> well, and mostly on Twitter, that's what film Twitter is from like our side of film Twitter, definitely. at least from the non broy side of film. And Twitter. also just kind of appreciating something for what it is. Like this is the perfect Saturday afternoon movie. Like when I watched this movie today at eight 30 in the morning, I was like, this is exactly what I want to be doing right now. First thing in the morning. Yeah. Watching. Totally. Yeah. Mona Lisa smile. And those are not, you know, they're not, great successes but i feel like also yeah we can we can find some value in them um just to get everybody on the same page every week here on this head oscar buzz we're going to be talking about a different movie that once upon a time or another had a big time had big time academy award aspirations for some reason or not it all went wrong so the uh, the oscar hopes died and we're here to perform the autopsy essentially i have my scalpel ready Yes, we have the scalpel ready. Oh dear, poor. <laughs> We're gonna just excise those berets off of their, <laughs> off of their educated little heads. Um, no. So this week we have, as we have mentioned, chosen the 2003 Seven Sisters themed uh, inspirational drama Mona Lisa Smile from director Mike Newell, starring Julia Roberts, Kirsten Dunst, Maggie Gyllenhaal. I didn't. We didn't get an Anne introducing Jennifer Goodwin, but I really wish we had because I'm pretty sure this was her first movie. I think that was a trivia fact at, that I saw. At least she should be on the poster because there's literally space for one more face for and one more pensive. And they're such a quartet. Face. Like the, the the story has them such. It's Kirsten. It's Maggie. It's Julia Stiles, who was very like of the moment. And Jennifer Goodwin, like that's it's it's a quartet there. It's not like Girl Interrupted, where it's like Winona and Angelina Jolie, and then like seven other people of varying. You know, yeah. you've got your Brittany Murphys and your Elizabeth Mosses and whatever. This movie reminded me of Girl Interrupted in a few ways, and I'm not entirely sure whether that was a stretch or not because it was like not quite the same time period. But it's there was this sense of women being sort of cloistered away and learning to reassess what their priorities were yeah well in terms of like what society was doing with them and in terms of female ensembles too it's like there's the one there's the performances that the movie are telling you are like the performances to pay attention to but then you have someone on the sidelines like britney murphy and girl interrupted that you're like actually this person's giving the better performance Wait, so who was that for you in Mona Lisa Smile? Mona Lisa Smile, definitely Jennifer Goodwin. Um, but I would okay. also say Marsha Gay. Marsha Gay Harden, who, who like was nominated. She got that Oscar year nominated this year. For a not for this. That's yeah. Perfectly fine. But like this one was so interesting yeah. because it, it's I love the scene where she's watching the game show at night and Julia Roberts is trying to get her girl out and she's like, No, I I, I think I, I want to do this. <laughs> and there's something so yes. sad about her, whereas the otherwise it's just kind of this like glossy Vaseline lens movie. Well, and she sort of reminded me a little bit of Brittany Murphy and Girl Interrupted, where, like, her great big trauma, I mean, like, Brittany Murphy's great big trauma in that movie is a whole lot different, but we find out that, like, she's not a widow, she's divorced. Yes. (laughs) That was a big thing about just, like, the specter of divorce and, like, these failed marriages. And, like, obviously, a movie like this has to sort of walk a line between having fun with the sort of 
the things that we put expectations on and we put value on back then, which was like setting a perfect table. Like Marsha Gay Harden's character like teaches etiquette to these ladies and like gives this hilarious like <laughs> SAT question for Homac where it's like your husband is has planned a dinner for his boss and his boss's wife, but his boss like springs on you the two his your husband's two biggest rivals and their wives. What do you yeah, do? It just it's very like, into sociopathy. It's right. Um I love that. I actually love that scene. Like oh, I have Marcia to say, this is so this movie good. doesn't work. This movie doesn't work. We need to say that off the top. No, like really doesn't. Does but there are moments where like I'm into it. So yeah, I mean, I guess we can sort of, you know, take it from the top in a second here. Actually, I want to very quickly play this clip from the trailer because I feel like trailers are very instructive. So uh, we'll meet you on the other side of that. In a world of wealth and privilege. How's the Harvard sweetheart? Devon. Getting an education. Says that you are pre-law. After I graduate, I plan on getting married. And then? And then I'll be married. Means finding a husband. You've got everything we've ever dreamed of. Since your wedding, you've missed six classes. Most of the faculty turn their heads when married students miss a class or two. It's brilliant, really, when you think about it. A finishing school disguised as a college. I thought that I was headed to a place that would turn out tomorrow's leaders, not their wives. Hell with Wellesley. I'm done. So, okay, Mona Lisa Smile, like the film, is very obviously, almost self-consciously, I feel like, it's Dead Poet Society-esque, right? Sure. We're like this one sort of more liberated teacher comes into this very stuffy educational environment where these are the children of of wealthy or privileged people. This is Wellesley College. This is one of the seven sisters. Um, all girls school, not a finishing school. There's a moment where like Julia's character sort of frustratedly has been like the you know, they disguised a finishing school as as higher education or something like that. Slide. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's the first thing we see of her. She walks into this class. And um, so she's from Julia Roberts's character, Catherine Watson. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. Let's say yes. Let's let's say you know, yes. There's a lot of W last names in this movie. There is. They did not really. Very yes. mid-Atlantic. Catherine Ann Watson. So she sort of she's from California. So she's an outsider here in Massachusetts. And she walks into Wellesley and the very first thing I think we see of Wellesley is all the women before the term starts sort of line up outside the the church there, the little and chapel the ritual there of it where it's this, they present each other they present they, themselves to the headmistress and uh, it's very formal. It's very sort of, outdated to us now in a way um, that's very um uncomfortable and almost a creepy way these type of rituals that they just right. seem so antiquated and so stooped in this like weird ritualistic sexism that the I, I don't know. Uh, the, well, so much of the movie is very overtly about how the, the, the sort of, push pull between do we educate these women or are we just waiting for them to get proposed to by their you know rich banker boyfriends or whatever and and like the boyfriends are played by i forget who plays kirsten dunst's husband but he's one of those familiar faces that always plays this sort of like jackass child of privilege and stuff and then julia styles is with topher grace which like so perfect like could you have found a waspier face honestly to play exactly this type of character, right? Keith so, like these Wasp, Topher Grace, which I think is yeah, oh, absolutely for Topher Grace, but especially here in this movie, especially here, especially here in them. Well, and then there's also oddly playing the bumbling nerdy one, the actor that's Desi from Girls. Yes, of course. Whose name? Ebon Moss Bacharach. Yes, sure, let's say. Let's let's go with that. Um, who I have always found cute, and as soon as like girls ruined him, sort of. Oh, did you know the girls' connection to this movie? By the way, speaking of which, aside from Desi, no, aside from Desi, the writers who I want to talk about later when we get into the sort of the pedigree of this movie. But the co-writers are Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal. Lawrence Connor, father of Jenny Girl, Connor, parents of girls creators. Yeah, so that's wild. Yes, insane. So, what do we think Mona Lisa Smile had? formatively for the creators of girls like were they responding to this movie in some way <laughs> i mean 
it's tough to say, right? We're like, I don't. What is? I feel like you have a little bit of a beat on this. Yes, I have a little bit because I think, and we can get into this deeper later. I think one of the problems with the movie where we're like the things you've been saying that it's so obvious with what it's talking about, but it doesn't really dig deeply into you know things past capital D divorce like you said like the specter of divorce right or or worse than divorce is spinsterhood right because like Julia Roberts' character is 30 years old in this movie she was actually 36 so like it wasn't even that much of a stretch but like there are these she's Julia has this weird cottage industry of movies where like her age is is played as this sort of like dire thing I keep thinking of my best friend's wedding. And it's like, if we're still single when we're 28 and it's, it's this like, weird thing uh, of where movies die. are always trying to age her up. Um, yeah. But the thing is, it's so clearly a movie written and directed by men in a way that yes, there's no nuance to it that I think a female perspective would have actually given to it quite naturally and maybe made this a little bit more than a I'm going to mindlessly watch this on a Sunday morning movie. Um, yeah, no, it's true. And again, we can get into that deeper later, but that's... So Julia shows up to this college, Catherine Ann Watson. She's yeah. 30 years old. She's She went to UCLA. She has this sort of like, the, the girls sort of like whisper around about like rumors they've heard about her. One of which is that she had an affair with William Holden, which is very funny. Um, and, but she's single she's not married they sort of there are rumors that she has a fella somewhere which is played by uh john slattery yes. of pre-mad men john slattery um probably i don't know probably around the same time he was on like sex in the city will and grace like that was probably what he was best known yeah. for back then um but so she is this clear outsider walking into this school right where she's teaching art she's teaching art history very bright-eyed with the idea that she's going to be making a difference and she's going to right provide some perspective and she also sort of conservative school she underestimates the girls i think that's one interesting thing the show the the show the movie Mm -hmm. does is that she underestimates the girls to start with in that she walks in and she like gives her first lecture and the girls know every single thing she's every single piece of art she runs through because like they are so studied on this because they are, they know what they need to do. They know what they need to know to get through school, to get to the right place in life, to get to the right, ultimately men they want to marry. Right. So in turn, they also underestimate her as well. Oh, of course. Yes, absolutely. Cause I think the whole movie is about them underestimating her. Yes. And sort and and the and the the headmistress of the school sort of like eyes her warily, and then her, one of the teachers she sort of forms an early kinship with, who is played by Juliet Stevenson, gets canned for she's she's the nurse or she's, she's the health nurse teacher, um, and she gets canned for distributing prophylactics yes on campus contraceptives, which the evil Kirsten Dunst does in her she has right who has like a column on. she has this like. She's like the Miss Manners of uh, of Wellesley, and she has a poison pen, and she will Which use it. Which people just fall straight into the trap of this editorial column that she has, because she's clearly just airing all of her bullshit, and all of her connections, and all of her... Like, it, every single article that she writes is in some way connected or associated to her, and it's supposed to be this, like, culture of the campus column. So I found that yeah, very strange. It's- but I also found it a little bit like relatable in terms of like we all have gone to college and we know the sort of little like teapot despots we find in our campus newspapers who like have yes. a column and they have a take and they it, it feels like their their grip on this school feels ironclad and then you sort of like take a half step back and you're just like oh my god this is so sad mm-hmm. so that felt a little bit but it also felt like we've seen so many movies where like propriety wins all i kept i kept thinking of do you remember in a league of their own when they had that little like montage of them like the lady the girls are like getting popular oh, or yes. whatever and the 
And then the one like school marmish like radio commentary where it's just like, Mr. Harvey, you, you and your baseball league when these women should be in the home. And it's just it's so I love that at the end. She's just like, Mr. Harvey, much like your candy bars, you're completely nuts. And it's like, oh, my God. But it's but that's what this sort of reminded me of, because we see her sort of like clackety clacking yes. on her like uh, typewriter as she's we hear the voiceover of just like this. You know, she's undermining. She kept. She keeps referring to Julia Roberts' yeah. character as subversive, which again is this very big, like, nineteen fifties dog whistle, of course. But a lot of the things that are su- are that are rather labored with this movie come down to Kirsten Gunz's character existing to kind of forward the plot in ways yeah. that complicate it and uh, you know create conflict. Um, she's the one who's closest to marriage. She's essentially like already planning her wedding. And her mother is this like Francis Fisher in Titanic style, like horrible woman. So you can't ever feel like can't ever hate Kirsten too much because it's like, oh, but look what she comes from. Like she never had a chance, that kind yeah. of thing. But so Kirsten also sort of it's interesting the friend dynamic of here, because it's Kirsten Dunst, Julia Styles, Maggie Gyllenhaal, Jennifer Goodwin are like this quartet of friends mm-hmm. and kirsten's the bitch obviously but she's not entirely the leader because like maggie gyllenhaal will undermine her at every turn maggie gyllenhaal is the sort of like the hussy the hussy exactly always my favorite the hussy character who's actually sad that's her right but she's like smart and she's empathetic and she will always look out for the other girls who, when she sees like kirsten is is picking on them or whatever. And she's, you know, always dating married men. She's dating, uh, she's sort of go undergoing this, uh, undertaking rather this affair with Dominic West, who plays the Italian, the, you know, professor of Italian, which is like, so perfect too. I started, I was thinking about that as I was watching, I was like, man, like who took Italian? Like to what end? You know what I mean? Well, they, what was they the make fun of there? Julia Roberts' character for never actually going to Europe, even though she teaches art. So maybe all of these rich right. mid-Atlantic people are learning Italian explicitly for the one time that they'll go to Italy in their lives. The Dominic West stuff was really bad because it was so incredibly obvious as soon as like they cast him, essentially, that like he's not a good guy. He's not a guy that like Julie is going to stay with. He's not like her very early 2000 sexy too and i have yes. to say every time i see dominic west i always think he's doug ray scott ah that's who funny. i'm not i can't even tell you one thing that he's in right now but i see him and i'm always like oh doug ray scott he's i always think of uh name of the deceased fred casely um <laughs> who's fred casely he's in mona lisa smile um he is in mona lisa so he's smile. having the affair with megan gyllenhaal of course he like starts like turning on the charm beams towards julia and julia is not you can tell she's not really having it but she's also like not fully sold on john slattery as her because what is she she's an independent lady i remember last year when people were over lady bird the which kind of girl are you do you go for the what are the characters names oh There's kyle or uh kyle or tommy is it yeah. tommy and it's like the mona lisa smile version of that is are you a john slattery girl or are you a doug Ree scott girl Dominic <laughs> West, whatever. um but the correct answer is of course nothing because what kind of girl are you you are a wearing your beret staring at a jackson pollock painting and not leaving until you've considered it <laughs> that's right? your only assignment that's for your only day. assignment and when you're done you can leave and i love like, <laughs> where it's just like you kept because of course if that was an all boys school they would have been done in two seconds too i can two just seconds. imagine but like i like that these girls like took these time seriously like julia styles was very intently looking at that painting and you can tell from the poster it's like they're still staring at that jackson pollock that's true so i feel like but i feel like ideally that's what the movie wants to be right is right. this real struggle that these women have between you know their intellectual pursuits do they want to go to law school do they want to or do they just want to even like put their college education to any kind of use right because the other thing is they go right from this like not cheap i can't imagine and like fairly distinguished college to you know 
devising strategies for dinner parties essentially and like you know keeping a home Sometimes while they're still at college right and so i think the movie ideally wants to be this kind of great struggle between what is expected of them and what they really want except the movie doesn't really give you a whole lot of characters like what does julia of styles wants to go to law want. school <laughs> right julia styles wants to go to law school but like that isn't really you don't get that very strongly except for just like she's like filling out an application like kirsten well, dunst like, desperately wants to win which is because she's a kirsten dunst character and that's all she ever wants like if you go through the entire history of her career she just wants to win and like i we get that with kirsten dunst and like that's fine but like maggie gyllenhaal's great aspiration i think is just to fuck married dudes and like jennifer goodwin's great like aspiration is to like find a nice boy like it's it's not like if all of these girls got married on that's um you know the same day at the end of this movie like would we feel like there's this great loss beyond the whole bigger picture of like generations of women whose talents were you know funneled into the kitchen right i agree with that i think all of these characters serve a different purpose for the movie i think kirsten dunst floors floors the plot maggie gyllenhaal is the hussy because there's always a hussy um, right. Julia Stiles' character, because she's the one who's aspiring to law school, she's the one that gets to have, you know, the actual dreams and hopes and like a goal to be working towards aside right. from marriage that the audience can kind of have that piece of the narrative. And then you have Jennifer Goodwin, who basically just functions as a love story is her story. So I think she's kind of there to assuage even the conservative viewers who might be aghast at, because they do exist that might be uncomfortable in this otherwise soft lob movie that is, you know, pushing for something or at least attempting to push for something more progressive minded. Right. So we go through the motions of like sort of exactly what you think we're going to go. We're like Julia Roberts's character gets in trouble for teaching outside the syllabus and for having ideas and for sort of trying to steer these women away from their paths in life. And here's to- and for daring to yell at Marion Seldes. Right, right, exactly. Um, so anyway, so there's this whole push to like, should we get rid of um julia roberts and yet like she doesn't do it's not like in dead poet society like all of robin williams's teachings come to a kid killing himself right so like and the stakes are never quite as high in this movie never i mean not to just reduce the idea of stakes to being death or not death right but no that is true it doesn't really get invested in what these girls actually want or what they might actually think about their situation it, the stakes are incredibly low in this movie. It, the, they're high for Julia Roberts, but not for any of her actual pupils. It's just not a very clear for a movie that feels like it was created from a book of like solid movie plots for the nineties kind of thing. Yeah. Cause there doesn't seem to be any like great personal stakes in it for the writers. Uh, these writers. Okay. This is, uh, let's go through the writers for a second because it's very interesting. Uh, Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, they wrote, first of all, the legend of Billie Jean in 1985. Uh, and also the jewel of the Nile, which was the sequel to romancing the stone. So like, those are two very interesting 1980s movies that they scripted and like sort of culty sort of like didn't get their due. They wrote that movie for love or money with, Michael J. Fox and Gabrielle Anwar from the 90s, if you remember that at all. Here for it. And then they wrote the movie Mercury Rising, which was a thriller with Alec Baldwin. And then this weird double header. The two movies they made, they wrote right before Mona Lisa Smile, were Mighty Joe Young and the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes movie. Which, A, I do not know how you go from that movie to like, let's have them write a movie for Julia Roberts about a finish or about Wellesley girls in the 1950s. It definitely makes you wonder if this is a studio hire situation where this is something that had been bouncing around for a while and maybe it had to have been, but then why so many different drafts and they're the ones that got the writing credit for it because they did that's major rewrite. Except there are no other credited writers on this. Normally you would at least get like, even at this time, somebody, I mean, I sometimes know. for things that bounce around yeah. for a while, or if it was somebody's, I don't want to say vanity project, but if it was not necessarily their idea and they were a hired hand. But then right. again, back to your point, 
why would you hire these two writers for this story? Well, and like this, that's why we're talking about this on on this podcast is because this is sort of the quintessential actors awards vehicle, Absolutely. right? Like the only reason this movie is made is to get an actress like Julia Roberts an Oscar nomination. She'd already gotten her her award, but like this would have been a very clear like this is her North country. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a few years later, asserting a certain legend status a little bit. Um, yeah. Like after you win, you get your next nomination just to let the kids at home know that you're not going to be. Right. Cause right. And I think that's because her career post Aaron Brockovich is very interesting. We're like 2001. You get the sort of like the inertia of, of where her career was going, keeps going a little bit, right. Where she's in America's sweethearts, with her and Catherine Zeta-Jones and John Cusack, and that's a dud. And then she's in The Mexican with Brad Pitt, which I think is a very interesting movie, but I remember critics at the time were very hostile to that movie. I remember so little of it, so I can't speak to that movie. I feel like it was on HBO a ton back then, and I watched it a lot, and it was those two in Gandolfini, and I think, and it's Gore, Verbin- Gore Verbinski who directed it. And I think it's, it's not a great movie, but it's a very watchable movie. And I think Julia and Brad Pitt are really fun together. And I'm sort of surprised that we didn't get more movies with them. It's sort of surprising that like in Ocean's Eleven, it's her and Clooney and like Pitt's sort of like there. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of well, which, and you have, and she, does, and she has her Soderbergh phase, right? That's the thing. Uh, it's the Soderbergh phase. And then this is basically the movie she makes coming out of that. That's supposed to be, you know, it's counter-programming for Lord of the Rings. It opens the same day as Return of the King. It's, you know, uh, it's supposed to be kind of a holiday prestige film. So you would think that their intention was for this movie to make some money. Um, Yes. At least counter-programming money. That we're going to get the women who don't want to watch, the sort of mothers and daughters who don't want to go see. (laughs) Yes, except I feel like... There were a lot of gay nerds who were into Lord of the Rings, I feel like. I don't know. Perhaps I'm over-identifying. But, like, I was going to see Lord of the Rings. I wasn't going to fuck with Mona Lisa's Smile. Not that weekend. Um, Perhaps it would have been different. Now, it'd be interesting to see, A, the Lord of the Rings phenomenon if it happened now. With sort of how would, you know, bitchy gay Twitter deal with something like Lord of the Rings, which is so supposedly masculine that kind of thing and would they have tried to flock towards something like mona lisa smile despite the fact that it's really no great shakes yeah. um, um the movie sort of does have expectations i feel like the thing about 2003 is an oscar year and i feel like we should just talk about that now is the lord of the rings was was thought to be the winner from like two and a half years worth of momentum right and not just the winner speaking best picture, but like it was going to take the lion's share of everything. Right. Where if it, the because so 2001 fellowship of the ring hits, it is a phenomenon of phenomenons. Like nobody, I think expected it to do that. Well, they expected it to do well, but the fact that it was, it was really the first, I say the first and someone's going to come back and be like, but you forgot, but like it was, the critical commercial like Jesus point of a movie, Where right? It's actually Where, all of those blocks too. You'd say at least on the box office side of things and the genre side of things that Harry Potter bolstered it a little bit, but Harry Potter also yeah. never crossed the finish line towards major awards consideration. Well, critics kind of were hostile to those Christopher, Chris, Christopher, Chris Columbus, Harry Potter movies. Harry Potter movies didn't start getting critical, uh, notices until Alfonso Cuaron jumped on and they decide then all of a sudden critics were like, Oh, an auteur. Well, <laughs> um, which I think is kind of funny. I think over, I think a, a general sort of reappraisal of the Harry Potter movies is, is somewhat in order, but like we've never stopped talking about them. So we would have to actually stop talking about them to, to take our breath with that. But I think the Lord of the Rings, like they were, it was like a plus scores from critics and the most box yeah. office. So like going into the 2001 Oscars, there was real expectation, like going into that season at least, there was real expectation that that movie could be a Best Picture winner then. And then you knew you'd have these next two years of like these sequels coming out, but like, you know, whatever, Godfather 2 and Godfather 3 also got mm-hmm. Best Picture nominations. So 
Um, but the idea was, do does the Academy give Fellowship of the Ring Best Picture, or do they wait until Return of the King two years down the line, in which at which point they can sort of honor the entire series? And that all seemed a little bit silly to me. But once it didn't win for the first two years, then it was like, well, they have to now. Like you, you've you've written yourself into a corner, especially after Two Towers, kind of. I won't say flubbed, but missed some key nominations like Patrick, Patrick, <laughs> Peter Jackson not getting nominated. Um, so, so there was a little bit of that momentum where, in the slightest way that it possibly could be, being such a juggernaut, that there was this kind of narrative of Lord of the Rings being yeah. unfulfilled and you know not awarded to what. Right. Well, and the fact that, like, I mean. I really thought Ian McKellen was going to win, you know what I mean? Supporting actor, and he loses to Broadbent and all of that. So anyway, all of this is to say, all of this is to say that going into 2003, there was one major player on the field. But the other thing about 2003 is all the other major Oscar bait crashed and burned kind of spectacularly. Like if you're talking about everything that opened toward the end of the year, where like... Cold Mountain is the big sort of emblematic one, right? Where it's the big Miramax movie. It's the big Harvey Weinstein push. It's the team behind The English Patient. It's Nicole Kidman coming off of her Oscar win for the hours. This was essentially... It's just this mountain of heat, you know, of like major Oscar players, major uh, at least critical darlings at the time. Wasn't the book like a Pulitzer Prize winner or something like that? Uh, like it was it was that or the National Book Award. It was a major um prize award of the books. So it was like it, it everything as far as pedigree is concerned, you couldn't have a higher pedigree going into Oscar season than Cold Mountain did. To the point where, like, during the O2 actress race, when, like, it was still sort of Kidman versus Julianne Moore, I remember the Julianne Moore people being like, don't give it to Kidman. She's got Cold Mountain next year. She'll win it then. Like, this was very much expected to happen. And then it opened, and nobody liked it. Everybody thought it was too slow and too long, and the accents were terrible. And while sort of Zellweger... And then Jude Law also for his nomination sort of managed mm-hmm. to hold on. The nominations day happens and like Kidman is snubbed. Minghella is snubbed. The picture is snubbed. All of it. And that was the one that at least made it to the last day before like otherwise these were. So these were the movies that were expected to contend. If you were talking about like early on in the year, right? You look towards the end of the year, the last samurai, the Tom Cruise movie of like white savior, uh, Edwards wick movie, which like, that mm-hmm. shit has worked before. Um, the Missing, Ron Howard doing a Western with Kate Blanchett. Like, all of the ingredients. Twenty. 21- a lot of these things that kind of blur together if you're talking about these movies. Absolutely. And some of these got, like, an acting nomination. 21 Grams gets some acting nominations. House of Sand and Fog gets a couple of acting nominations. In America gets a couple of acting nominations. But none of them sort of even scratch the surface of the Best Picture race. Big Fish doesn't go anywhere. That was one that was expected. Um, The Company, the Robert Altman ballet movie, doesn't do it. The Human Stain is awful and reprehensible and terrible. (laughs) And we will definitely be talking about that on this podcast. (laughs) For sure. Um, So all of these things sort of like fizzle. And then so what do you have? 2003 is a very interesting year Hmm. because what stuck around, like Mystic River, Lost in Translation, Seabiscuit, stick around master and commander makes it essentially on respect alone because nobody really loves that movie but everybody's like what an achievement it didn't make i mean master and commander probably partly stuck around because a lot of those movies fell that's exactly right but like to the point where like they had to reach back into the summer and bring seabiscuit back because they're like, oh shit, we're sort of running out. They had to reach back into 2002 Brazil <laughs> for to get City of God. I forgot to get City, City of God, God where they're like, hey, Fernando Morales, we need a fifth director nominee because all of these things crashed. You're eligible, turn. right? They called up Keisha Castle Hughes from the supporting race. They're like, sweetheart, you are moving on well, up. They did those two shocking, I swear to God, even with Keisha Castle Hughes and Fernando Morales, perhaps the most shocking nominations of that year were Samantha Morton and Jaiman Hansu for In America because, like, the buzz had gone ice cold on 
everything in that movie except for the screenplay because it was jim sheridan and his well, daughter and samantha morgan but, there was some category stuff there too right like they pushed her originally for supporting i thought no well yeah her and keisha castle hughes both there was like weird and like the fact it still boggles my mind that they screwed up an actress nomination for scarlett johansson that year that they couldn't have figured out some sort of coordination that either like focus couldn't have gotten the girl with the pearl earring people to back the fuck off and just let them do a lead ca- uh, lead campaign for scarlet and best actress for lost in translation but like whatever was going on they fucked that up so bad which is insane to me how popular lost in translation was and it wasn't able to get a nomination for her it's insane um since we're talking best actress, we should talk a little bit about Julia here because a lot of the Oscar buzz buildup there is because this is a post Aaron Brockovich vehicle for her and probably the first that you could feasibly say would be thought of as an Oscar player in the real sense. And it, it, I think that for her, it's one of those cases when you actually see the movie and you see what she's given to do, there's just no way she's going to be in the conversation unless it's someone who's really really on some nomination kick like i don't even want to say meryl streep but i just don't see people voting for this character that doesn't really have essentially anything to do there's nothing in the script for her right we spend all of our time talking about these girls and granted she is the lead of the movie but everything is so understated and not necessarily in an interesting way that's going to make someone correct you. so it well and also even her performance her. Because, like, Julia Roberts can walk into a movie that, like, is no great shakes and sort of give it a little bit of her, you know, A-lister pizzazz or whatever and liven it up. And she doesn't seem to me like she's super loving being in this movie. Am I wrong? About I, you're not wrong about that. And it's she's kind of ill-fitted to the part, except for the slide monologue, which is, like, the only time that she really, you know, moves the dial. And the one where she's yeah, presenting slide. slides from modern yes. advertisements um, yeah and jennifer kudman's like that's not art that's advertising and she's essentially just like <laughs> shut the fuck up i have a monologue to do this will be my oscar clip um so it's just like if there was a more interesting uh, i don't want to say interesting like it's a dig against her someone who would be more interesting in the part than her oh who do we cast that in that role in 2003 joan allen Oh God, cast Joan Allen and everything. Um, I mean, basically. I mean, Marsha Gay is right there. Just recast her in that role. Joan Allen would have been a little bit older too, right? So like she could have maybe sold that. Because I feel like, I mean, I guess the whole thing is like, oh, I can't believe that like 30 was considered, you know, ancient at this point. But like, I don't know. Marsha Gay Harden's an an interesting idea too, I have to say. Um, she just, I mean, like, if you look at even her Mystic River performance, which is essentially nothing on the page, and she's just doing shit the entire time that she's on the screen, like, she can fill quiet characters in ways that, like, yeah. have a lot of life and externalize the internal. Yeah. That's maybe not one of Julia's stronger points. So I think we both agree that the most interesting performances and characters in this are the younger mm-hmm. girls. Where where do we rank dunst styles not to like you know pit women against each other or whatever but like where do we rank the four wellesley girls uh i mean my favorite of those performances would easily be jennifer goodwin um and, and like you said earlier this is when we were still discovering her too and i think that's something that the movie's missing a little bit is that you're putting all of these next big thing actresses next to each other that when you have this one who's someone we're not as familiar with their performance is already a little more exciting. And if there were people that we're not so accustomed to seeing in these roles, maybe they would bring more right. edge to them. Yeah. At this point, the only thing we knew her from, she was on Ed. She was on oh yeah 25 episodes of that show, Ed, but this was her first feature film, which is kind of amazing. And then the next year she's in Wit a date with Tanda Hamilton, also with Topher Grace. And it's it's interesting, too, that there wasn't really any talk. And maybe it's because all of their screen time is really shared. And it's not, if anybody does kind of pull your emotional focus as an audience member, it is Jennifer Goodwin. 
But it's interesting because like at this point in their career, you're talking Maggie Gyllenhaal, Kirsten Dunst, and Julia Stiles. They were all three actresses that we felt fairly certain would be getting their first Oscar nomination at some point. And now... It's crazy to me that Kirsten Dunst still has never been nominated. Still has not, because at the point of this movie, we'd be like, oh, that's a certainty that's going to happen. And still it feels like a certainty, but like at this point... When's it going to happen? She was nearly nominated for in, not, I guess, not nearly nominated for Interview with a Vampire, but like she got some, she got either she got a Globe nomination. I thought was it a Globe? I was going to say yeah. a Globe or a SAG nomination. And I so still like, think that's one she of was her in the conversation. It is one of her best performances. Her it is. I love that movie. Nobody talks about what a great child performance that is. It is shockingly good, and that it comes the same year that she was in uh, Little Women, which <laughs> not the same level of performance, but like. Very different. Amy got her limes, limes thrown out in the snow, and she was, you know, incredibly sad. And um, Maggie Gyllenhaal too, who had maybe more. We knew her, as you mentioned, from Secretary too. So, like, it was just kind of this sudden dynamo that came onto the scene that we knew would be getting there. I don't think we would have anticipated she'd be getting there with Crazy Heart. With Crazy Heart, right? It's true. But but coming off of Secretary, because Secretary is one of those classic like indie movie critics loved it she gets like the indie spirit awards nomination whatever was never probably a real threat to get a best actress nomination although it'd be interesting to see if that happens today whether she pulls that out 2002 best actress is a very interesting animal i feel like the way that shook out the fact that the best performance of the year from meryl streep did not get nominated (laughs) i'm just gonna just gonna lay that there at our at our feet um but so you would feel like the the desire to make it up to her would be strong going into the next year, and I feel like if Mona Lisa Smile were even a were even a little good, it's not that it's not good. Whatever, if it had met expectations, even or a if it bit. had exceeded expectations, because I think our expectation is yeah. that it is this soft, rosy sure. movie. Yeah. But if it had given us something to take away from it other than well that was a nice two hours especially if it came from a performance i think it would have been very easily very easy for one of those actresses to get in those supporting actresses pretty tough and ironclad um that year but okay it was and yet but it's that up and coming thing too that could have given them some one of them that little added push that yeah especially because like again kirsten dunst kirsten dunst career at this point is so incredibly interesting where like she had she had been the child star and she had done sort of the child star thing and a bunch of things and then bring it on kind of levels her up right where she can carry a movie does very well she is making that transition from like teen star to somebody who you can see being a star in her own right and then a versatile talent too she's not necessarily she's doing those teen movies but she's not necessarily that's not just all we see her as right and then so 2001 comes it's crazy beautiful which doesn't really move the needle like you would want it to except her that it does have right like people really really liked her performance in it and again sort of thought it was the sign of maturity from an actress who had been with us for a while and then 2001, nobody remembers that like the cat's meow happens and there's like a groundswell mm-hmm. of people being like, Kirsten Dunst is the best one in this movie and like kind of deserves awards attention, right? Like I feel like it never really got it, but I feel like there was some sort of groundswell. Well, it was like yes. a late spring, early summer movie too, wasn't it? Am I crazy? I think you're right. That sounds about right to me, which again is the perfect time to like surface something surface is maybe the wrong word for that movie but you know um a performance that wasn't going that would have gotten lost in the shuffle of fall awards glut right yes so that happens and i feel like that movie strangely like levels her up again where all of a sudden now we can talk about kirsten dunst as being an awards caliber actress and then spider-man the next year where then all of a sudden she is She's not the lead of that movie, but she's like the top female star of the biggest movie ever at that point where she can do no wrong. And now all of a sudden she's making money. She's, you know, 
the Hollywood establishment owes her one essentially. And she's perfectly positioned. And then she gives these like, I don't know if Mona Lisa smiles a great Kirsten Dunst performance. It's a big Kirsten Dunst performance. She's clearly I would like, argue it's not a good Kirsten Dunst. I think well, I, mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give you any argument. Yeah. yeah. And we talk a lot about, I think there's a lot of Kirsten Dunst fans out there and they all have a different favorite performance or their no one, no moment. one's bringing this one to the table to the table. This is, I mean, you'll probably have more cats meow stands than you should. Yeah. In this. Um, and then eternal sunshine of the spotless mind happens, which is a phenomenal performance in a role that is just too small to be considered, right. which and it's the same year as this. It's, too. No, it's oh, the, next, the year. next year. So we're jumping ahead. Eternal Sunshine. Um, yes, we are. But I'm saying like this era should have been the era where it, where she got a nomination. Like by the time we're at Bachelorette, which she also deserved a nomination for, we're past it. Yeah. Right? We're now all of a sudden we're talking about like a comeback for Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, which is, there was some of that narrative around Melancholia where it was like, oh, she's here again. It's like, she's always been here, gang. But so, but also the fact that like, even just, she had gotten into the celebrity sort of Us Weekly People Magazine kind of thing with the relationship with Jake Gyllenhaal and like that sort of soured. And so I think she sort of was feeling out these kind of ways to be an actress, an A-lister. And she really came out the other side and was just like, I just wanted to be an actress. And now that's what she is. And she's wonderful. But I feel like we missed, I don't know if it's we missed our moment, because I do feel like it's not over for her by any means. But there was a moment in time where, like, the iron was hot and it didn't get Who I think that moment has probably sailed for, but could always surprise us out of nowhere, um, that we haven't discussed is Julia Stiles. Because at this point, it was kind of like... I think that's true. Also, though, SAG award, SAG nominee, Julia Stiles, and right, she was Silver Linings Playbook. Must have, or was she one of those like got lost in the nomination? Oh God, I forget that she's in Silver Linings Playbook. Right. Um, no, I want to uh, see. What... I would put money on it that she was not in that lineup, which is too bad because she has a couple good scenes in that movie. I feel like. I feel like she'd be a good David O. Russell staple too. She is a SAG nominee, but not for Silver Linings Playbook. She's for the cast of Dexter. Sure. Which is pretty good. She's a five-time Teen Choice Award nominee. Wait, more than that. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-time Teen <laughs> Choice Award nominee in five different years. That is amazing. That's pretty great. One of which was shared with Mona Lisa Smile. She was choice movie actress, drama slash action adventure for The Prince and Me and Mona Lisa Smile together. Lots of action adventure in The Prince and Me. Lots and lots of, but in both of these movies, really. She was a winner in 2001 for two categories, choice actress for Save the Last Dance, choice fight scene for her and Bianca Lawson, which... Really, if you're going to get a nomination for a fight scene, do it with somebody who played a vampire slayer and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, is what I say. Was nominated for the film Down to You, Choice Chemistry with Freddie (laughs) Prinze Jr. She was nominated for Choice Scream in 2006 for the remake of The Omen. Definitely remember that she did that remake. Definitely remember that. And two nominations for 10 Things I Hate About You, which is a genuinely great movie, and she's genuinely fantastic in that. But what a career for Julia Stiles, truly. She's never actually stopped acting. She's just done small TV stuff. It's just we want we want that yes. 10 Things I Hate About You caliber again of a role for her. Yeah. Yeah, she, you know, I think by this point, she was already sort of on the downslope, yes? It was just starting, maybe. Because um, it's not that far removed from 10 Things I Hate About You, no? That's 98? Well, 10 Things I Hate About You was 99. 99. And... Uh, Save the Last Dance, which yeah. was her like peak, peak I feel like, was 2001. So let's see. After Mona Lisa Smile, where does she go? She does The Prince and Me, again, Teen Choice nominee. She's in The Born Supremacy. So then all of a sudden that becomes her like 
reliable paycheck, right? Yeah. She's in the Bourne movies. Nobody can remember <laughs> which ones or which ones are like flashbacks to when she was like whatever. Um, which one she she eventually becomes a love interest, correct? Sort of. The, those no. Bourne movies, you know, they're they're Mission Impossible movies. They're in one year and out the other. You forget about them as soon as you're out of the theater. But yeah, after Mona Lisa Smile, movies. take away the Bourne movies after Mona Lisa Smile, and it's the only titles that I recognize are The Prince and Me, the remake of The Omen, and then it's nothing till Dexter in 2010. Like, she's in a movie called The Cry of the Owl. She's in a movie called Gospel Hill. She's in a movie called A Little Trip to Heaven. Nobody's seen these movies, right? I definitely haven't, and I right. know some deep cuts, and those definitely sound like julia styles titles so like <laughs> this does seem like a, a an end post for her which is like utterly too bad because she was so young in this movie yeah. Ugh, it's too bad and then jennifer of course was like only on the way up like this was only the beginning for her yeah she gets big love and then eventually what's this one that i'm not even sure she's on anymore that is ending once upon a time Jennifer Goodwin probably has a lot of money. That is my guess. She does just quite well. I think she does pretty well. Can yeah. we talk a little bit back to the big picture of this Oscar year and what was eventually nominated? Yeah. Especially if you're looking at some of the titles we've mentioned in the best picture category, with the exception of yes. Lost in Translation, which could even be a little iffy there. These are a bunch of for lack of a better term, dude movies like, and Mona Lisa smile is very, not that. And it was positioned as counter programming to Lord of the Rings in a box office term. So it makes you wonder why it couldn't have at least stood out being not so male focused of a film in even the ones that you're talking about that missed the mark that were late year releases that didn't make it to oscar why this movie couldn't stand that's out a good point just by being different and get more attention that way i think that's curious yeah the only the only nominated actress performance that year from a best picture nominee was marcia gay harden for mystic river everything else came from other movies um it's just a very macho year it's interesting I mean, Oscar very much so. that yeah. often, but this year particularly, it really stood out to me. Um, and especially looking at a female-focused film, it's hard not to notice that everywhere. Yeah. I think Lost in Translation, for as much as like Bill Murray became sort of the face of that movie, I think that's Sofia Coppola's movie. I think Scarlett Johansson's character is the focal point of that movie. She's sort of where that movie gets filtered through. But... Otherwise, I think, yes, you're right. But then in a lot of ways, uh, Sofia Coppola was the story there, but Bill Murray was the big yes. story about Lost in Translation that year. Well, yes, I think there were two stories about Lost in Translation, and one of them was the Bill Murray story, and one of them was the Sofia Coppola story. And they were kind of two different stories. Mm-hmm. And the Sofia Coppola story was the one that was kind of more about the movie, and the Bill Murray story was a little bit about his character right because his character was this famous actor who sort of seems like he doesn't have the love for it anymore right which like bill murray always kind of presents and yeah um it's an odd it's a very odd year i think there are certain movies that i that feel feminine even though they're not necessarily like in america to me feels like a very feminine movie where like even though patty constantine's a major character that feels like it's the mother and the daughters, and the you fact feel that the like daughter's hand in the screenplay more than the than Jim Sheridan's is something I would definitely yes. observe. Wonderful movie in America, like truly phenomenal movie. Um, to Mystic River's credit, the female supporting characters are major characters in that movie. Like they're not just sort of like they they fill out the tone of that movie majorly i do they do unexpected things too in what i think you expect them to do in this incredibly macho movie and honestly the biggest like female driven besides monster which like 
the fact that Char- like Charlie's won fully deservedly, but the fact that Monster wasn't recognized anywhere else on that ballot is insane to me. The fact that like the makeup wasn't recognized or I don't know. Like, I don't know if Patty Jenkins is necessarily a director nominee that year, but like, I feel like that began the narrative of undervaluing Patty Jenkins in Hollywood. The fact that like it was basically sort of treated as like Charlize Theron teleported into that movie, gave a performance all on her own and then teleported out. Then if you look to what is likely the runner up best actress nominee and you want to talk about underappreciated or Nancy, a certain growing Nancy Uh, Myers, (laughs) who I I would also say the same thing for something's got to give. I'm very high on that. Yeah. Uh, That would have been an, I, I think there should be some screenplay talk there or should have been, I should say. Um, and Jack too. It's weird that the like that the stray the stray screenplay nominees that year were like dirty pretty things, which I think is a pretty good movie, but is an insane Oscar nomination to me. Um, Not when you think that Stephen Knight was also he won for Traffic, right? So he's a recent winner. No, no, Traffic was yeah. Stephen Gagan, not Stephen Knight. Sorry, Stephen. Stephen Gagan, who would go on to. <laughs> No, Stephen Stephen Knight was sort of a kind of a workaday, like he's you know worked a lot. I'm looking at it now. He his pre Dirty Pretty Things prestige was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Sure, okay, definitely. That's something he wrote. Burnt in 2015, so there was that. Burnt, or are you referring to amazing? Potentially talked about in the future here on this had Oscar Bud Pop. I'm Oscar talking about the, the, the film that was Adam once Adam Jones. Jones. <laughs> yeah. He also wrote uh Woman Walks Ahead, which I haven't seen yet. The oh, Jessica I haven't seen movie. that either. I'm eager to see that. Um can I tell you that my uh, one of my local theaters still had an Adam Jones poster up after Burnt had opened. Nice. Oh I would have asked them to, if I could like keep it. <laughs> I should have. That's like the equivalent of like a like a baseball card with an with a mistake in the statistics, right? Where like you wanna you wanna hold on to it. It was also that would be a great like decor theme. I always like idea of like what kind of movie posters, like old like you know French language can posters or something like that. Yeah, but like posters with the old titles would be great. Should we talk about Mike Newell a little bit? Uh, uh, <laughs> sure. Um, what do I, I mean? I think he adds a certain level of prestige because they can put from the director four weddings and a four weddings and a funeral on the poster. I think that's sort of what he's been running on, kind of his entire career since that. Like I know he made like Enchanted April and well, whatnot, I mean it definitely changed after this when he did a Harry Potter movie. It's a tangent, but like okay, so like but Mike Newell, okay, do we think? Because his career is very varied, right? He directed mm-hmm. Pushing Tin. He directed Donnie Brasco. So it's not just like English costume dramas. He directed, oh, God, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. Like, Bluff. right. He's directed that movie that everybody's somehow weirdly talking about on Twitter now, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society movie. He directed that, a like, potato movie? Yes. I'm telling you, I have to see this potato movie. I have Please no come to New York and we'll see it together because here. like, I need some support here. For our listeners, for background, I do not live in a major market, but I'm desperate to see the potato movie. Joe, give us the title of the potato movie and hopeful Oscar candidate just so that we can talk about One the potato more time. movie all throughout the- history. The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Sure. Starring half of the cast of Downton Abbey. Um, Legitimately, Lily James, Jessica Brown Finley, Penelope Wilton, all stars of Downton Abbey. Does Lily Um, James play someone's like secretary? Matthew Good was also on. I don't understand how this isn't just like a copy paste of the cast of Calendar Girls, but it's about potato pies. (laughs) Um, so the poster, oh my God. So it's, first of all, it's Glenn Powell from Everybody Wants Some and Glenn Powell is in the potato movie. I literally only know about the potato movie because it's the potato movie. Um, Jessica Brown Finley from Downton Abbey, Penelope Wilton from Downton Abbey, and also the, um, best exotic marigold hotel movies. Uh, Tom Courtney, um, Michael 
Hoisman, Heisman, whatever from uh is that the new robocop guy there's like three slavic actors that i always think are the same person and that they were the robocop guy not that guy but he was the guy i'm pretty sure who they put into game of thrones to be the hotter guy to be with uh daenerys sure anywho Catherine parkinson is also on this poster matthew good is on this poster and then like lily james is like striding across the front of it with her like smart luggage and lavender top coat I I am henceforth because I will never remember that title I am henceforth only calling this the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society anyway no I'm just gonna keep saying I want to say pot pie I'm just gonna call it the best exotic potato pie as you should the best exotic potato pie competition anyway this should have Oscar buzz by now honestly like if Paddington (laughs) can get a nomination for uh Hugh Grant I'm in it for this movie. Cor- we'll be a two-man marching band for the potato. All right, movie. I'm just going to read the storyline synopsis very quickly because we talked about Harry Potter, so we're going to talk about this now. A correspondence begins between Juliet Ashton and members of the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. They don't explain what this is. With them sharing their experiences of Nazi-occupied Guernsey. When an idea a Nazi movie? Apparently. When an idea for a book catches Juliet, she goes to visit the island, making lifelong friends and taking life-changing steps along the way. This book is told by way of letters and as the reader. Oh, it's based on a book. Um, So this is a description of the book. You become enchanted by the writers of them and the love Juliet comes to feel for each of the islanders. A beautiful story of love, friendship, and the sadness of friends lost. We should all go see this movie with our mothers. It is Mother's Day next weekend. Everybody is it opening next weekend? No, but find a bootleg. I don't know. It's been open in uh it's been open in the UK for like weeks now. Um it does not have an American Listeners, if you have thoughts on the potato movie. It does not have an American premiere us. date, which Call your local theaters. Do what Meryl Streep said in her 2006 Golden Globe speech. You have to call the owners of your local theaters and make and Netflix them. thinks they're saving cinema, but they're not giving us the potato movie here stateside. I don't compute. I don't understand. Oh, I do feel like there is a Netflix element to this movie. I should know this. This is my job. And yet, I don't. Speaking of which, there's an old-timey like British siren happening somewhere outside, if you can hear that. It's the potato pie people coming to bring you the potato pie. <laughs> um, dear Lord. Okay. Um, yes. So. This may be a good note to end on. Netflix is distributed in the United States. They do not have, I don't believe, a premiere date yet. And yet, save us Netflix. Give us the potato movie. This is a good note to end on. Thank you, Mike Newell, for bringing us here roundabout for the potato wise. movie. Hopefully, you, you will make have it happen Oscar with Mona Lisa smile with your potato movie. Oh, God bless it. Okay, so ha, you you had seen this movie before we talked about it for this yes, podcast, or no? I had not. I'm not mad that I saw it. I am not I mad that say. I watched it again. Though, oh, one thing we do want to talk about: it was nominated for one Golden Globe. Yes. For um, best original best song. original song for the legendary duo of Elton John and Bernie Taupin combined to write a horrendous song. If I could just give our listeners, I would love to send them off on our very first episode with the wonderful lyrics to cap Mona <laughs> Lisa's smile, much as it does in the film with this awkward like. Uh, like photo reel that's supposed it, it's just atonal to what the movie is and it's like it, it, you get kind of this vague the movie is a vague like isn't divorce awful this like we talked about the specter of divorce for like what it is to be to experience institutionalized sexism and then you get can we very quickly talk about who else was nominated oh, this year very quickly because this is a wonderful best song year. You have the winner, Annie Lennox for Lord of the Rings. But just for the Golden Globes, oh, right? We're Golden just going to talk okay. about the Golden Globes. Because Give me the Golden Globes because I don't. Annie Lennox won that as well for Into the West. Um, only one Cold Mountain song was nominated. Was it the other, other, the unlike the Oscars, was nominated too. It was the Sting one. It was You Will Be My Ain True Love. And IMDb writes, You Will Be My Ain't True Love because truly no one believes that Ain is a word, A-I-N. 
Um, Scarlet Tide would have to wait for the Oscars to get its recognition. Um, the Bono song from In America was nominated, Time Enough for Tears. And then the Eddie Vedder song from Big Fish, Man of the Hour, was nominated. Again, not for Oscar. And my two favorite Oscar went for Scarlet Tide, uh, uh, Kiss at the End, of the, at the end of the Rainbow yeah. from A Mighty Wind, which could have just taken the whole category if they would have allowed it. But I believe they only campaigned that song. Um, and also the Triplets of Belleville theme song. Oh, right. Which Belleville Rendezvous. The coolest original song nominee maybe ever. It was true, except the performance during the Oscars was kind of like, oh boy, like this is a mess. But yes, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. Anyway, tell us about The Heart of Every Girl. The Heart of Every Girl, written by Bernie Toppin and Elton John, as performed by Elton John. I'm just going to serenade you with some lyrics. In the heart of every girl, there's a woman waking up. Like sunlight spreads across the world, a smile for us is just enough. But in the heart of every girl, there's a homespun family dream. A light that's filled with so much joy. From a curly head beauty to a teenage queen. And honeymoons in summer prove we'll always love a bride. The gift you give us all is the one you hold inside. This lucky life, this crazy mixed up (laughs) world, is all because we love what lives in the heart of every girl. This to sir with love motherfucker right here. Can I tell you? Holy crap. I and I think it's just like they gave Elton John like a two sentence log line of what the film is as they were passing him at the Grammys <laughs> when there's like a million people around him. And he's like, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll write a song. It's about girls. Girls becoming women, women becoming wolves. Um, also, I wonder if they had Tori Amos do songs that were not standards, whether she would have had a shot at a Golden Globe nomination. Oh my nomination God, that Tori Amos instead. cameo. We got through this whole podcast and didn't uh, talk about the Tori Amos cameo. Only my only my favorite musician of all time, too. But like, And I knew she was in this movie because I remember hearing about it, but I completely forgot that I knew. So all of a sudden, it's like we're at the wedding. And all of a sudden, she's like, the camera kind of like rushes up to her and like lingers on her for a good while. And it's very much like... Uh, Everybody, look, we got like someone famous to play the singer. It's and it's like, we're not stodgy. We're cool. And she's singing it in her very sort of like, uh, sort of like breathy kind of way. But she's singing um, You Belong to Me, that standard You Belong to Me, which is a really good one. Um, the music's good in this movie. The music's I will good say. in this movie, except for The Heart of Every Girl. Except for The Heart of Every Girl. Um, but it was lovely to see her in this movie. It was. Uh, I, I sometimes wonder what she would have had to say to these women in their Wellesley tradition. Anyway. Um, yeah. Mona Lisa Smile. Not a surprise it didn't get nominated for a whole bunch of anything. I guess it goes to show that like you can't just put a Best Actress winner in the plot of a former best picture nominee and like set it and forget it. Yeah. Right. Alas. That's our episode though. For now, (laughs) if you want more of this had Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at this had Oscar buzz.tumblr.com. You can also follow, you should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on the twitter.com. I am Chris V file. That's F E I L. Um, that is where I am on the, Twitter. where, where can we read your musings? And, oh, and... you can, you can also read me. Uh, I am a contributor to the film experience. I have um, a weekly column there called soundtracking on film music and soundtracks. Um, In case you were wondering why we were so eager to talk about the Elton John song, that is why. I will definitely be talking about songs in the future on this podcast. Yes, wonderful. Um, So Chris, as Chris said, you can find him on Twitter at Chris V. File. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. That is spelled R-E-I-D. And every day you can read me at Decider.com, covering film and TV and everything that's on streaming. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. Bye.